Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel 5, if you would. Uh, As you're turning there, if you've spent much time in Beaufort, you've probably seen some of the scenes where the movie Forrest Gump was filmed, and we certainly would not commend that movie in terms of language and content. We don't deny, or I don't deny, the creativity of it, because you followed Forrest Gump through this amazing life as he recounts to you his experiences, from teaching Elvis Presley to dance, to being a standout football star, to a Vietnam war hero, to a multimillionaire seafood tycoon. You get to the end, and and really, Forrest has done it all. Well, in David's life, you've really seen something similar. First, when David come, came onto the scene, we saw this a couple of years ago in 1 Samuel, he was privately anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel after Saul dies. Then he became a household name as a teenager by killing the giant Goliath, and then he served in Saul's court as the musician and the only one who could calm Saul's mind when depression and even insanity began to creep in. Then he became a bodyguard to Saul. He eventually became the captain of Saul's armies. Then he married Saul's daughter. Following that, there were years of fleeing from Saul's murderous pursuits, moving from town to town, during which this band of misfits began to surround him. Then finally, Saul died, and David became king of Judah. Not all of Israel yet. And what would follow was seven years of war and intrigue and waiting as the other 11 tribes got caught in, in political turmoil following Saul's son Ishbosheth rather than David. So this point, David, probably less than 40 years old, has done just about everything except become king of Israel. He's not become king of the whole kingdom even though that had been promised to him many years before. He's been living in what we would call the already and the not yet. He's already been promised the kingdom, but he's not yet seen it consummated, not yet seen it fulfilled. So he is waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, in our text this evening, the kingdom finally comes, and David ascends to the throne. Look with me at our text, Second Samuel 5, starting at verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in, Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years, and at Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem, against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. 
And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Uh, Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the things that I've said almost ad nauseum during the study of the life of David is that the Old Testament is so incredibly applicable to our lives. The last time I preached about a month ago on the life of David, I shared what I think is a a spot-on quote from commentator Alec Mateer where he's speaking about the Old Testament, and Matir says, the Old Testament is the Word of God. It exists not to record for our amusement, but for our learning imperishable principles of divine truth. Isn't that a great word? These stories, 3,000 years old in this case, are imperishable principles of divine truth. Now, Matir was a brilliant commentator, but that idea is not entirely original to him. You heard it last week as we were reading through Romans 15. We read the first portion, and in Romans 15, verse 4, Paul said almost the exact same thing. Listen to this. Paul said, Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So in other words, Paul's saying those things are not just amusing stories. We're all too guilty at times of, of treating them that way. These are written for our instruction. They are written to matter to us for our encouragement. And so that means if you are ever reading any passage from the Old Testament, and you're tempted to say, this doesn't apply to me, God says, oh yes, it does. Every word of it was written to instruct you, to encourage you, to strengthen your hope, whether you're living a thousand years before Christ or two thousand years after the coming of Christ like we are. So we always have to ask, how does this passage 
instruct us? How is it relevant to us? And in our passage today, I think what we see, what we get, is a glimpse of what God is doing behind the scenes, outside of our field of view, building his kingdom. And that's intended to give us hope. Because there's really, this side of glory, not much visible evidence a lot of days of God's work of building the kingdom. In fact, it can feel like things are counterproductive at times when we look at the culture, we look at the world. But when we look at the word, we see that behind the scenes, God is building his kingdom. If you learn anything from this passage, let it be that David's kingdom and the way it comes in is a foreshadowing of the kingdom of the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how his kingdom comes. You know, we pray that every week at this church. You may pray it every day in your own personal devotional life. Thy kingdom come. And I hope we don't say that in vain. I hope we don't say those as empty words. When we pray that prayer, thy kingdom come, we are saying that our hopes for this world and for the world to come rest squarely upon the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we look at this passage, and I think this passage does strengthen our hope as we see how David's kingdom comes. And I want you to see three things about how the kingdom comes here. Three ways this passage instructs us. First, the text shows us the kingdom will come. Second, the text shows us the kingdom will come clumsily. And then third, I want you to see the kingdom will be victorious. The kingdom will come victoriously. So we'll look at those three things tonight. First, this text shows us the kingdom will come. By this point, David has been waiting and waiting and waiting. You know, you just think of how long we've been studying these passages, and you can imagine how long it's felt in David's life. Sometimes David was waiting in a palace. Sometimes David's waiting in a cave. But now David is finally coming to the throne. Every roadblock has been torn down, and even though it's been a long journey for David from Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, this passage immediately reminds us that God's promises have no expiration date. Let's make an early application. You need this, I need this, because we are so prone to forget God always keeps his promises. Numbers 23, 19 says it in a great way. It says, God is not like man that he should lie. In other words, God is not capable of deceiving us. Whatever God has promised will come to pass. Now, that can be hard for us. It's never early like we'd like it to be. It always feels like it's late. But the reality is, his promises always bear fruit when they are perfectly ripe. If we're honest, though, the Lord's timing can be frustrating to wait for because we don't understand, and sometimes we don't trust God with what he's doing in our waiting. Well, what was the Lord doing in David's waiting? You know, we, we don't know all, certainly, but we can see a few things that have happened in the last couple of decades of David's life. God's been building patience in him. He, he's letting David mature. He's preparing Israel for David's reign. We can see all of those things, and there's probably a million others that God was doing that you and I could not comprehend. And that needs to be a settled reality in our hearts. At any given moment, God is doing a million things in our lives with great precision and care. And some of that fruit simply is not ripe for the picking yet. 
and we have to continue to wait patiently upon his promises. Well, now for David, the Lord's promises are being fulfilled. He's becoming king, and you see this in verse 1. All the tribes of Israel send representatives to David at Hebron. They're prepared to plead with him to be their king. Now, there's a lot of instructive information about how the kingdom comes, specifically how Christ's kingdom comes. You, you think about David's kingdom, and God has already pronounced that David would be the next king. But that was at a private anointing at Jesse's house by Samuel. There was no word from heaven declaring to all of Israel, this is your next king. And so it was something that was actually going to have to happen in the hearts of men. It, it was going to have to be a transition in their own hearts. Even though David had been the rightful king, only the tribe of Judah for seven years recognized him as king. Now, through this series of events and seven years of being king at Hebron, the long war that went on, now the people finally recognize David as king. They're ready for the kingdom. Uh, how do you define the kingdom of God? We're certainly, we understand the correlation here, I think, between David's kingdom and Christ's kingdom. But how do you define the kingdom of God? We certainly know that Jesus is king. He is sovereign over all things. He said in the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And yet we look at the world and we see that there is much opposition to him. So where, what are the bounds of his kingdom? Well, in a sense, his kingdom is boundless. But the way that he brings his kingdom is through willing submission in the hearts of men. God's word says, your people will be willing in the day of your power. The way God brings about his kingdom is into the hearts of men by bringing us into willing submission to Jesus Christ through the gospel. And we see a picture of this with David. You know, this is this group of leaders. They've showed up to plead with David to be their king, to petition him. This is no small group, by the way. If you were to read the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, and you were to add up all the, the different groups from the tribes, there's about 350,000 people that have come, and they're all of one mind to make David their king. So look at verses 1 and 2. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your flesh and bone. In other words, you are our people. We, we, we don't want a foreigner to be king over us. We want you. You are one of us, and we want you to be our king. In times past, verse 2, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. In other words, you're really the great leader. You were the military might, even when Saul was the king. And then they claim God's promise. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Now there's a lot we could say about that, but there's one thing that, that I want to focus on. Their words, this plea that they bring, is really repentance. These are the people, these 11 tribes, wrongly followed Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Some of these same men would have been the ones who opposed David and fought David on Saul's behalf. And now they come to David with changed hearts. The kingdom comes through the hearts of men. This is a, an earthy and political picture of what God does spiritually in bringing his kingdom. 
This is how we come into the kingdom, through repentance and faith. We, we have to acknowledge in coming into the kingdom that we were once naturally opposed to the Lord Jesus as king. Now, like David, there was nothing wrong with David as king. It was all about politics. Now, with us, there's nothing wrong, of course, with the Lord Jesus. He's the perfect king, but our hearts have a political problem. And the political problem is that we want to be king over our own hearts. We are the ones that, that we set up as on the throne. There's a natural desire to be our own kings. And so the way into the kingdom of Jesus Christ is to renounce our own kingship, lay down our, throne, our crowns at the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not just a one-time deal, is it? You know that that's a daily thing. Day after day after day, we have to denounce our own kingship and come before Jesus and acknowledge that he is the one rightly upon the throne. You know, that's why you and I need the word of God daily. We need to be in the word because it constantly reminds us that there is a king and I'm not him. That's the logic of the Lord's prayer, by the way. If we're going to pray, your kingdom come, we must also be willing to pray your will be done. Jesus, this is, uh, you are the king, rightfully so, and I yield the control of my life and my kingdom to your sovereignty. You know, this is the kingdom of Christ on earth. It's not, it doesn't take the shape of a political regime or a military movement. It's willing submission to King Jesus as he subdues rebel hearts to himself. The kingdom does come. It's not by force or with much fanfare. It comes in the hearts of men. That's how the kingdom spreads, as God, by his Spirit, speeds forth the word to bring about willing submission to the hearts of men as they hear the good news of the gospel. And just as God kept his promise that David's kingdom would come, the kingdom of the greater David, the Lord Jesus, has come and will one day come in its fullness. Second thing I want you to see is that the kingdom comes clumsily. And that's a clumsy statement to say in the first place. Clumsily sounds weird. All week, some of you know, I've, I've had my finger in a splint and typing has been a chore. For every word that I get right, I seem to get too wrong and there's been a lot of backspaces and deletes. That's a good picture of how the kingdom seems to come on earth, doesn't it? it? It's often two steps forward, one step back, in terms of the visible manifestation of the kingdom on earth. Now we see two great steps forward here in, in what happens with David. There's something wonderful we see in the first thing that David does when he takes the throne. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. The Jebusites were Canaanites who lived in what would become Jerusalem. Now, the rest of the story is David went, they did take the land, and of course Jerusalem became the hub of the kingdom. We'll come back to that. But the important thing I want you to see first, the very positive thing to note is David takes the throne and immediately he gets to work. This land of the Jebusites is part of a land, of course, that has a rich history. I want you to look with me at Genesis 15. In 
in Genesis 15, God cuts that amazing covenant with Abraham where he promises, what are the three things? A people, a place, a presence. That they would live forever in the land with him. And I want you to see what this looks like in verse 18. Genesis 15, starting at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God promised that land about a thousand years before David was crowned. And it's not that God's promises had failed for a thousand years, but rather that Israel had failed to trust God's promises. If you remember going back to Exodus chapter 23, God had commanded that when the Israelites go into the land of promise, that they wipe out all of the pagan tribes that live there. God desired to protect and preserve the purity of his people. Now, of course, they disobeyed. They didn't do it. And it would cause generations of fighting and vulnerability in the land. But I want you to see David's response to this. Look at Psalm 101 for a moment. Scholars believe that David wrote Psalm 101 about his coronation. The psalm is a sober reflection on the requirement that the king be a godly man who lives in obedience to the Lord. I want you to see the last line, verse 8. It seems really strange until we put it in the context of 2 Samuel 5. Psalm 101, verse 8. Morning by morning, I'll destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. This is, he's talking about exactly the situation with the Jebusites. David is saying... God, I know Israel has been disobedient. I know that her leaders have failed to do what you called. And so the first thing I want to do, the moment I take the throne, the morning after I take the throne, is I want to march in on the Jebusites and take the city. He's seeking to turn the tide of disobedience from the leadership of Israel in the past. And of course, the Lord Jesus, it is always by the obedience of Christ that the kingdom comes. It's his perfect obedience that we look to. And David, in a sense, is imitating that obedience here. Now, there's another positive thing we see David doing in marching in on Jerusalem. He needed a capital city. He'd been at Hebron, but Hebron, where it was, it was too far south and it was too politically entrenched in Judah. Israel had never really occupied Jerusalem, so it was a politically neutral city between the tribes of Israel. Now, the Jebusites don't like David's plan to take the city, but they're not worried about it. Ever since the Israelites went into the land, the Jebusites have been safe. They felt their city was impenetrable, and so they even taunt David. We can defend our city with blind and crippled men, and you'll still not make it in. That's their taunt. Now, David knew something that they didn't know David knew. The city had an Achilles heel. That was the water shaft. It it was a 50-foot shaft straight down in the middle of the city where buckets could be lowered down to, to draw water from the springs below. And David's plan is to send a man up those limestone walls who will come out inside the city, likely sneaking his way through the city and then opening the gates for the army to invade. 
And just in case that sounds like a suicide mission, if you were to read 1 Chronicles 12, the parallel account, it tells us David sweetened the pot by saying, whoever does this will get a generalship in my army. By the way, it's interesting, in 1867, Captain Charles Warren was doing an archaeological dig and he found this water shaft. I don't know if you know that name, Charles Warren. He was later tasked with leading the Metropolitan Police of London, and he was the leader of the failed attempt to catch Jack the Ripper. Anyways, that's totally irrelevant to your lives. David's plan works. They defeat the Jebusites. From then on, Jerusalem becomes the city of the king. More than that, it's not just a matter of of world politics. It's an eschatological picture of the new Jerusalem, where Jesus will reign in the new heavens and the new earth. Two giant steps forward. But like I said, it's clumsy. And we get a picture here that not all is well. And that's because of David's great vice, lust. Fighting the Jebusites, taking Jerusalem, those have been two great steps forward. But for David, The lust of the flesh is always going to be one giant step back. Look at verse 13. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. It's easy to read this as a simple, neutral statement. It's not. It's an indictment of David. Sometimes people will read this and will say, well, that was normal for kings of those days. That's how they built political alliances and those things. And I want to say exactly, David was not supposed to be a king like the nations. He wasn't supposed to be a typical king. That's why, if you remember, what did a king do before he took the throne? According to Deuteronomy 17, he had to copy the law by hand so that he read every word of it. As a reminder, David, you are not the absolute authority here. Undoubtedly, David was familiar with the words of Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. Listen to this. Speaking of the king, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. The king is never above the law. And so even he must submit to God's design, which from the beginning was for one man and one woman to be married for life. You know, commenting on this, John Calvin reflects on Genesis 2.18 and God's design for marriage, and he says, notice it doesn't say, let us make 12 to 18 helpmeets fit for him. But David seems to think it does. And this is not a mere vice for David. Lust would always be the besetting sin of David's life, and it would escalate out of control. And we're going to get there in the next couple of months as we reach the Bathsheba episode, and then how it spirals into a cover-up and murder, and how it causes intrigue and division in the family. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you see how damaging lust is? when it's not curbed, when it's not fought. This man who defeated Goliath and every army that he faced could not overcome his own heart. His wandering eye, his unrestrained desire 
are going to create family squabbles and divisions so severe that this man who smoothly navigates international affairs cannot handle his own family problems that he created. Not only that, David's son Solomon is going to follow suit and all Israel will suffer. Please, no sin ought to be trifled with. Every sin will hurt you, but especially the, the, the sin of lust, when it is left unchecked, will do inestimable damage to you and to those you love. Well, thankfully, David's sin could not hinder God's purposes for the kingdom, but it reminds us of this point that the kingdom comes in a very clumsy way, on the one hand, David is making good progress as a leader, and on the other hand, he is engaging in sins that are going to have negative impacts on Israel for generations. You know, Scripture never glosses over the sins of men. You see this amazing picture here in chapter 5. You see the, the coronation of David and, and the defeat of the Jebusites. You see at the end, which we're going to come to in a moment, the defeat of the Philistines, but right there in the middle you get this vignette reminding us that the best of men are men at best. Our hope cannot rest in mere mortals of this world. They will ultimately let us down. They will ultimately betray our hope. You know, we see that in our world today. We see leaders come and we get excited about them. We think, now everything's going to be right. And we think it every four years, don't we? If we can just get this person in office, everything will be all right. It's always clumsy when we're dealing with mere men. None of them can sustain the weight of our hopes. Pastors rise and fall, politicians rise and fall. As tempting as it is to read a passage like this and think, oh, if we only had a David in our world today, David's kingdom was clumsy. It was triumph mingled with defeat, strength mingled with weakness, victory mingled with tragedy. That's how the kingdoms of this world always are, clumsy and unable to sustain the weight of our hope. So this is why, and this takes us back to our, our year-long study of Hebrews, doesn't it? We have to look for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When we look to the kingdoms of this world and set our hopes on them, they will ultimately crush us. They cannot bear the weight of it. Nothing in this world can bear the weight of your hopes. Nobody in this world can bear the weight of your hopes. Only the Lord Jesus can. David is the best of men, but he was only a man at best. Um, only Jesus is worthy of absolute trust. And this brings us to our third point. Hopefully it'll be of great encouragement to you. The kingdom will be victorious. You get to verse 17, this old enemy pops up, the Philistines, they've heard that David is now king. Do the Philistines remember David? Oh, you better believe it. He killed Goliath, he cut off 200 foreskins from Philistine men, he outsmarted and outmaneuvered and deceived the king of the Philistines, not once but twice, and so they decide to mount an attack. David has an outstanding theology of war. 
He understands that the battle does not necessarily go to the swiftest or the smartest, but it goes in whatever direction the Lord wills it. And so rather than mounting an attack, first, look at what he does in verse 19. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I'll certainly give the Philistines into your hand. He does. Then verse 23, and when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourselves. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezir. The key to the whole Philistine episode is in verse 24 at the end there. The Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. The kingdom comes, not on the might of men, but on the power of the Lord. And he will be victorious. You and I need that tattooed on our foreheads, don't we? We read the news and it seems like it's all bad, like the kingdom of darkness is going to win. Yeah, I think if we're totally honest as we're confronted with the 24-hour news cycle that is never good news, it's easy to think, I wonder if the church is really going to survive. Will the kingdom really thrive? Will evil win? We have to understand and remember and tuck away in our hearts the reality that no matter how things may seem, victory belongs to the Lord. And depending on your eschatological viewpoint, that victory may be more or less visible in this world, but you and I can rest assured that Christ will have the victory. The church will never perish her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. brings us great hope if we can just remember that, that no matter how things seem today, you and I can be optimistic. Whether or not the kingdom reaches some golden age on earth, as some eschatological viewpoints say, or if things are going to get worse, what ultimately matters is that in the end, Jesus wins. Christ will have dominion. He'll continue to build his kingdom here on earth invisibly through imperfect people until he has called to himself all of his elect. Luther's so helpful. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail. He will return one day to judge the living and the dead. He will take to himself all those who are his by faith. He will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. He will reign forever and ever and ever. And the kingdom will come, though it will come clumsily, it will be victorious. How do we apply this? Oh, oh I just want one simple application. As the church, we must take hold of and keep hold of kingdom weaponry. When our hope is in God to build his kingdom here on earth, we don't rely on human power but on divine power. 
we deploy not the weaponry of typical human battle, not the sword and the shield, nor the weaponry that so many churches are tempted to use today, which is to pander to the masses and to water down the gospel and to entertain people into the kingdom. That's not how it works. The weaponry through which God builds the kingdom are the word and sacraments and prayer. It's through those means that he will dismantle the kingdom of darkness, release the captives to true freedom in the gospel, and build his kingdom here on earth. You and I must be careful to never look at those things and say they are weak and powerless. These are the means through which Christ will build his church. So what do we do? If he's going to build his church, what do we do? We keep our hands on the plow, remembering the kingdom does not come in through great displays of charisma and huge numbers or human ingenuity. The kingdom comes by proclamation of the word, by faithfully administering the sacraments, and the church humbly praying down heaven that God might pour out his spirit upon, upon the church in prayer and that he would take those means of grace and that he would build his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And as we take hold of those things, as we humbly obey Christ and we trust the Holy Spirit to do that work, we can be confident that God can accomplish more than a thousand armies ever could as he builds his church. Let's go to him now in prayer. God, we thank you for the confidence we have in Jesus Christ, that he will be victorious, that he will have dominion. We have every reason for confidence, not only because it's promised to us in your word, but because we saw Jesus conquer death upon the cross. And if he can conquer the final enemy, death, then there is no enemy he can't overcome. So give us faith to trust the Lord Jesus, that he will build his church, he will build the kingdom, here on earth, and that it'll be filled in the new, fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Keep our hands to the plow of that kingdom weaponry, we pray in Christ's name.